Welcome to the Minimalist CEO Podcast with Nate Lindquist. Nate created the Minimalist CEO Method to help business owners redefine and grow their businesses by finding new demand in places they never thought to look where there's no competition. By following his opposite thinking strategy, Nate's coaching clients have grown their business up to 40% in just two months and created tens of millions of dollars in revenue. Nate himself has launched more than 140 businesses. On the show, Nate interviews successful business owners and experts who share the secrets you can use to have a better business and a better life. Hey everyone, Nate Lindquist here with the Minimal CEO Podcast. Welcome back. I'm glad that you're here. More importantly, I'm excited to welcome our guest. Without wasting any time, this guy is a former minor league baseball player. He referred to himself as a utility guy, which interestingly enough, also put him right into the restoration business space, which is perfect. I think he's a utility guy there too. Leading a team of people who are focused primarily on the environmental side of uh, mitigation, dealing with water damage and a bunch of stuff like that. You're going to learn directly from Joe Gillikin. So Joe, thanks again for being on the podcast. I think I said your name right. Welcome to the Minimalist CEO yeah. podcast. Thank you for having me, Nate. Yeah, yeah, you got it. So how did you end up here? How did you end up on the podcast? How did you end up in business? Who are you? Uh, we got a pretty good group of people who are going to be like, who's Joe? So <laughs> tell us who Joe is. Well, I'm a second generation restorer. My father had a restoration company here in Oklahoma City. As I was growing up, I did follow my dreams of trying to become a major league baseball player, fell a little short there. I did finish school and had a business degree and ended up back in the family business and decided at one point that uh, I wanted to get out of the reconstruction side and focus more on the mitigation environmental side of, of restoration. Okay. So you go from baseball to an office job in a lot of ways, and then to the restoration space. So for our listeners, again, if you could just tell us what drove you into this particular business. I, I would say one of the most difficult businesses that there is, which is uh, going in after damage, water damage. Now, do you do fire damage too? Yes, we do. So what is it that got you into this particular business, Joe? Uh, again, you know, growing up around it, it was kind of second nature to me. I loved working with my hands, being on the job, things of that nature, but also the servant's heart part of things and helping people when they're going through an event such as a fire or major water damage or even storm, tornado damage, being someone's, you know, guiding light, I, I would say, when they're going through that shock is what kind of kept me in it. I love it. Yeah. So you care about helping people. It seems Absolutely. to be something that's important to you. All right. Well, you're in the space. What are some of the things that you had to do to grow your business to $1 million in yearly revenue and beyond? How'd you get past that threshold? Yeah, really developing and investing in the right people. It all comes down to, I can't do all that myself. You have to have certain pieces to the team, no different than a sports team. And I, and I always refer to my employees and personnel as team members. And I think that stems from the career in sports. You have to have the right people. Without the right people, you won't be able to succeed. Okay. So was there a time where you were trying to hold on to a bunch of stuff yourself, try to do too well, much yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I think with every entrepreneur, we all have that mindset that nobody can do it better than us. Um, we have standards and ideals that we think our way is the best way. And we feel that nobody is, again, can do it better than us. So when you hire employees and you assign them those tasks, if you will, that you're usually doing, the hardest part is delegating and trusting in them as a person and being able to handle it one to your standard, but also in their own particular way. 
sometimes you really aren't the best. Sometimes that person you just hired and brought in the door is actually better than you. So I want to ask you this then, Joe, at such point along the way, did you have to take what you established as standards and create how you delivered processes? So you could share, have an outline written down. This is how we fulfill our work. And then look at that process and say, okay, I can delegate some of this. I mean, did you actually go through that operational strategy step? I don't know that it, it, it was that distinct. I think it was bits and pieces at a time. I first started with help, obviously, because I was, I was the owner operator when I bought into the franchise network. And then I established some guys to help me out with the labor side of things and installs and such things like that. It allowed me to get out of the truck and start focusing more on the business and maybe the sales and marketing side of things and allow them to go out and do the production side of things. Then after that, we had to get some more office personnel and then, you know, obviously hire an ops manager, a production manager to run the operations side to, again, allow me to focus on more of the business side of things. So how did you define the roles and the tasks, whether they're tactical or strategic for the team members? How did you make it clear how they were going to be measured and whether they were doing a good job, which I know is so important in putting a team together. Sure. I mean, we followed, you know, honestly, as we grew, I knew that I couldn't do this on my own. I've never started a business ground up. I actually reached out for help through mentorships and things like that and consultants. And so a lot of those parties that I went with were actually really good about helping me develop those plans and strategies as well. So when developing these employees, we established guidelines and performance reviews and things of that nature that would help them, you know, determine whether they wanted to stay in that position or try to move up and what they had to do to do so. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So if for anyone who doesn't have their processes in place and hasn't gotten mentorship, what would you tell them right now? I would tell them if you don't know how to do it, you know, maybe start simple as reading a book or looking something up to help you establish that. And if you still don't understand or have a good finger on it, then reach out to some consulting groups. I'm sure it's it's probably not hard based on your industry that you're in to see who specializes maybe in that industry and find through word of mouth or referrals or anything like that and see who's, who's really good at helping you like that. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I'd say it's a 10 out of 10. I blew it off for years mm -hmm. and built out team members or relied on team members to put processes in place. And that would be for me, one of the essentials in a business is if, you know, I think Edward Deming said it perfectly when he said, if you can't describe your processes, you don't know what you're doing. That's <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> so awesome. All right. Well, a big piece of the puzzle that we teach in the consulting group and the mentoring team at the Minimalist CEO and Interspire Inc. is that we're obsessed with removing clutter. So getting rid of distractions, getting rid of the ineffective money and time wasters. And a pattern that we've noticed the most in successful business owners is that they can easily list the things to cut away, things to stop doing, the things that have really held them up or bottlenecked what they're doing or just caused problems. And getting rid of those, cutting those things away seems to be a pivotal part of what's made them successful. So I would love to know if we could look at that from three different perspectives and mm -hmm. see what suggestions you would have. And I think the three primary business goals that I hear are my business is sucking up all my time. I have no freedom. So going after this first one, if you want your business to give you freedom, what is something that you have to cut away from your business to stop doing to be able to have your freedom that you're hoping your business will give you? What have you learned about that? Sure. Many things, honestly. I would say the one big thing for me was, you know, 
putting again the right personnel in place that they could handle the production side and not rely on me 100% of the time. So in our line of work, we respond 24-7, seven days a week. If someone has a water loss on Easter morning, we're there. And that just happened this year. But having those guys in place has allowed me to not only focus on the business itself, but also finally enjoy that quality time with my family that I've been looking for and why I became an entrepreneur. So if you talk about cutting away, was it not making yourself the 24-7 team? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Was there anything else that you cut away, that you stripped away from what you were doing or the way that your business was running that freed your time up more to have that, those family moments? Because we hear that all the time. I just, don't you understand? I'm doing this for you. And that you get this you know, husband-wife battle constantly going on of the provider king and the woman who's like, you know, listen, I don't really want to hear any more about business right now. I need to have a husband home. So what would you say from a essential minimalism being focusing on what's essential? What would you say to that person who's struggling with that right now? Again, going back to the delegating, I think that was and probably still is the hardest thing for me to battle as far as trusting my people and staff that are in positions to make those decisions. We do work hard on empowering them to make those decisions. So I got to be very cautious of them when they do and they make a mistake. We educate and develop from that, that we don't discipline, if you will, or scare them into not ever making a decision again. So being able to rely on them to take advantage or take care of certain situations without having me involved in every single decision has really, really relieved me a lot. Awesome. Yeah. One of the things I noticed is to have sort of a decision-making threshold. You say, listen, as long as it, you know, one of the rules that we have for one of my strategy teams, when they're working on a strategy plan and something's not coming together or they're working on ads or whatever it is. And I say, listen, if you've got to solve this problem, maybe it's a problem with a piece of video. Maybe it's a problem with one of our pieces of software. I say, listen, if it's under a hundred bucks, take care of it. Whatever you got to do, take care of it. If it's over a hundred bucks, you have to talk to our operations director. So it's like creating those boundaries. I'm happy to not get a call under 200 bucks. But for my director of operations, I love to know that I don't have to hear about it or she doesn't have to hear about it for under a hundred bucks. So that's great. Those are, that's great advice that, that you're sharing. So, okay. The second primary business goal that I hear about all the time is getting more clients, securing more clients, having more consistent revenue. So if you're going to look at this from the perspective of getting more money, more revenue, more clients through into the system, obviously looking at being more profitable as well. What would you say would be the essential piece and what's something that they could cut away? Well, early on in business, I know we focus a lot on internet leads and things like that, just trying to get customer reach, just trying to build that brand in your, in your marketplace. And so we focused a lot on that in the early stages. As we grew and were fortunate enough to you know, get some jobs that could sustain some further growth and things like that, we again have invested in some personnel that can help us get out there and build relationships. I would say in our industry, relationship building is one of the key components of growth, that and delivering a consistent product and being fair. In restoration, you get a lot of, just like any contracting business, you get a lot of guys that are opportunists that want to take advantage and what we call becoming a millionaire on one job, maximizing revenue. And that's not always the best approach. We've found that just being fair and consistent and maybe maybe we don't make the margin on this job that we're used to making but the next one makes up for that is kind of how we've approached it. And we seem to, you know, building a lot of trusted partners in the process. How important do you think referral partners and service partners are 
in your business. Is that the crux of where your new business is coming from? Absolutely. So referral partners is a huge, huge revenue stream for us. You know, there's certain markets that send certain types of business. Obviously, you know, you've got, you know, fire departments, if you team up with them for branding or marketing awareness type things for the community, you've got plumbers for water. There's all kinds of different ways, agents, insurance agents and adjusters. But yes, you don't have to hit everybody in the market. All you have to do is get five to 10 of those potential targets to continuously send you business and you'll build that business fairly quick. So who are the top three referral partners from the standpoint of the category, the industry they're in, you know, what opportunities they're finding for you? Sure. So on the water side for us, it'd probably be plumbers. Second after that on mold and things like that, that we do on the environmental side would most likely be from the real estate community, whether it be investment firms, realtors, or property managers themselves. Um, and then of course, fire and things like that. It's usually going to be agents or a lot of times personal referrals just because they know we're in the line of work and they know somebody that went through a, a catastrophe. So you have enough relationships with, with individuals where they'll say, hey, you should call Joe and his company. Sure. Again, the person we have in the marketing and develop or the business development side has done a very, very good job of establishing an online presence with social media and things like that. Me being a little older, I know how to use it, but I'm not exactly proficient at it. So I understood that I lacked that knowledge employed someone that, that did have that knowledge and was good at it. So you're doing a lot of organic social media posting. Are you sharing stories and talking about how you've helped people and what kind of things you've been dealing with? Do you share videos and photos? We do. We try. It doesn't go as well as planned. Obviously, there's always room for improvement. We do a good job of connecting with other industry professionals and kind of building that reputation as well. We actually get quite a bit of referrals from other restorers located in other areas of the country that know we're in Oklahoma City and maybe has a relative or a friend that's here that had an event and they call us. Wow. Okay. Now, is your business and your brand one that you created completely from the ground up? Did you get involved with the franchise or how did you end up in the space? Yes, we bought into or I bought into a franchise. I knew when I was leaving my family business, it was a restoration company too, is what we call it, but they focused on the reconstruction and the remodel side. So they're more of a GC. When I wanted to focus on the mitigation side, I knew I wanted to go with a franchise that had the insurance type side of things, but also a scheduled work. I didn't want the ebbs and flows of what the industry typically sees from insurance restoration. It's very seasonal. So I knew I didn't want that. And so I knew that some of these other franchise networks that I was looking at weren't the right fit for me. And I happened to come across Advantage Queen just on a little side banner, I think on Facebook and never heard of them and clicked on them and quickly realized they were a great fit. One, because they were a newer, younger franchise, but two, they had the same core values that aligned with mine at the time as well. And so it was a perfect match in my opinion. Awesome. So what we're talking about here then is you, you have put a ton of focus on building relationships, building partners, building out your team, delegating. Would you say that all those ingredients together have created a situation where you can really love the business you're building? I absolutely love the business. It's uh, I just used this as an example. The other day I was talking to a friend who's in the same line of work in the same franchise and he was asking certain situations and you know, I was asking him, questions regarding his financials. And he really didn't have an answer. He, he didn't knew what I was talking about, but he didn't have the numbers. And I said, how are you, how are you tracking these metrics? And I said, you're just watching your checking account, aren't you? And he goes, yes. I said, that's not a very good way to run a business. And he's, he's not a small business, which kind of shocked me in a, in a sense. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess when you get that big, you start building systems and processes and things like that. And it becomes fun. It becomes like a, an adult game of Monopoly, if you will. And you start kind of playing with money here and there and moving things around. And it's puzzle piece after puzzle piece. So how do you, you know, you talk about building referral relationships, and, but yet you've grown to the point where you've gotten past that million dollar a year threshold. How have you moved the needle most effectively? If you, if, do you have a person who's responsible to lock in those referral partners? How do you lock in the referral partners? I mean, how do you take something that to most people seems, yeah, they said they'd send us some business. How do you turn that into, hey, they're sending us business? And maybe you can give us an example of that. Really what you're doing is you have to have some sort of value add or some sort of reciprocating value that you can give to your your referral partner. Don't just walk in with a handout and say, hey, we'd love to have all your business and advice for, and if you send us something, we'll bring you a gift card or take you to lunch or something like that. That's really not going to get them to send you anything. And sometimes even referral fees, they'll ask for that. But what we found that has been successful for us is building that established relationship, but also giving some sort of value in return. There's ways that we can help them as a business, limit their liability, take care of their customers. Again, making sure that our service and our professionalism align with that company. We found that most of the owners of our referral partner companies really like that. They're not concerned about the monetary gain. So what's the primary way that you give them a value add? If you would say they really, yeah, I mean, we all know about referral fees. We know that sure. you can have like prizes for a certain number of referrals. Um, we've seen cooperative marketing programs where they become a member. So they're conscious of what rate they're paying if they have a member program and they're a part of that cooperative advertising. But what is it that's locked it in the best and made them made you feel like you've got that reciprocation where they keep referring business? So without diving too far into it and giving away our secret sauce, I'm just kidding. It, you know, really, again, just being that trusted advisor and really being there for them when they need it. A lot of our referral partners that we've talked to when they've used other restoration companies in the past, they felt taken advantage of. They felt that those partners took them to the bank, basically to the insurance company. And I'm talking like if they had a water loss claim, the other restoration company would maximize that claim to the absolute limit because the new insurance was covering it. What they don't realize is that ends up coming back to hurt that referral partner in the end with their rates for the next year or beyond. And so, so you have partners that have claims sure. run into damage for when they're on a job site. So maybe a roofer who, you know, has a water claim or a plumber or HVAC, and you're able to be there for them in a way that mitigates the downside of their claim. Absolutely. And so what we try to do is develop a, an established rate sheet, rate schedule, if you will. We even establish certain price points that if, if it's under a certain price point, we'll do it for them for this or possibly even free to keep that liability off their claims. Obviously, if it's a massive loss, a, a fire or something like that, then we address that as the time comes. But majority of the time, we're able to help our clients for minimal amount of money or free of charge sometimes to help them. Do you find that it's normal to be a plumber and have a claim or normal to be an HVAC company or a roofer and have a claim? Unfortunately, yes. They're still human companies, right? They're still got technicians. Most companies are pretty well trained, but there are companies out there that just aren't. Most of your plumbing companies are going to be a licensed plumber that runs the company or owns the company. It's in his name, but then the technicians that are going out to the house have never had formal training other than what their bosses showed them or told them. So the scary part is, is to answer your question is yes, there's more claims out there regarding these service professionals than you would think. <laughs> That's cool. So you can be in a lot of ways an educator to the trades, to the home services trades, and in, in doing so, prepare them to have fewer claims, but also be there when they do. 
Yeah, we actually have a program that we do that as well with some property management companies that have staff members such as handymen or maintenance men. We'll actually train them on how to handle certain situations and even rent our equipment to them so they don't have to call us. But then we expect when that big one comes in or when that one that's a little bit above their education level to call us and we'll come in and take care of it. So you help them mop up the water when it's a small thing or like call in the cavalry when it, you know, when it's time to have a claim that you can handle. That's right. That's great. I think that's brilliant. So you're partnering, actually helping to mitigate the downside with your partners and also possibly reduce some of the risk with their client relationships because clients don't like to know they cause damage when the guy came in to do the work. Sure. In most of the situations, it's, it's new construction on commercial or residential. The last thing the client wants to do is be pushed off a deadline because of a mistake one of their tradesmen made. So we try to get in there and mitigate the loss and, and try to get them back on track as fast as possible. Would you say that, that if you were to kind of call everything together, that's one of the biggest, most successful pieces of your new business development system? I, was, I would say so. Yeah. We, we seem to get a lot of good feedback on that, that side of things. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. We have a program at Minimal CEO for restoration companies called the partner effect. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, you know, I always say if when you're working with a partner or potential partner, you're outlining all the ways they can send you business, little green men come along and take the opportunity and the money away. (laughs) But if you're, if you go into the meeting, helping them, being fascinated with them, helping them communicate to you how best to refer them, communicating with them, how best to prevent problems, water damage and things, and how best to deal with them when they happen that, and you kind of stop, you don't pull out your calculator for yourself. It seems like reciprocation kicks in nicely. Sure. I mean, if you think about it, every company has a need. And that's one of the first things we ask when we go into a potential referral partner is what is it that you need and what is it you're not getting now? And so we try to address it with those two questions. Yeah. I always call it the mistake factor. So either your customers running into mistakes that you can't fix or you're running into mistakes and problems that you can't fix. Yeah. And then that's a great get to know you conversation for a potential, potential partner. Yeah, I love that. So how have you found a way to keep the information and all the details of a very, I think a very complicated before and after picture business, how do you keep the details from falling through the cracks and how do you keep your promises? That's a great question. So even with all the trials and tribulations and we're constantly growing and, and, you know, developing, you mentioned earlier systems and processes, I think are essential and key. We here at, at our location love to utilize the latest and greatest in technology. I think it's grown massively in our industry in the last five years, faster than any other period that I've been in the industry. So we try to develop certain systems and processes in, in place that will eliminate those details from falling through the cracks. Is it always followed? Absolutely not. And what we do is we try to make it as simple as possible. Right now, we've got countless apps that we use for certain things, but we're trying to constantly you know, bring those in and confine them to one. Okay. So you're, you're hiring some technology to take care of the details. Absolutely. And now I would imagine there's a decent amount of training for your team to make sure that also like, are we capturing that you're like, do you have like a quarterly review of where do we make mistakes? Where do we miss the details? Where are we possibly, where have we possibly not build something or anything like that? Sure. Actually, I was going to go right into the training aspect of the technicians. Those are the guys that are on the front line. They're the customer facing product of the company. We want them obviously to be well dressed, well, you know, presentable, all these things, but most of the, most of all empathetic and professional. We spend a lot of time and money in training these guys. 
We give them a lot of opportunity for growth and to grow within the company. But yeah, I mean, training is the biggest thing for those guys. And then going back to what you said on a quarterly basis, we actually meet weekly and we go over wins and losses every week, talk about last week's jobs, what could we have improved, what did we do wrong, what did we do right, and go on. I love that. Constant improvement. Constant. Yep. So, okay. Well, you've covered so much. I think these are lots of insights that our listeners could take action on. Keeping your company growing and scaling, what goals do you have over the next 90 days? And where do you want to be a year from now? Next 90 days, we have some uh, hiring initiatives, which seems to be the struggle, really not just with our industry, but across the nation. Uh, It's just the times we're in. We're really struggling to find guys that want to work and work consistently and on a regular basis. We're trying to implement some bonuses and things like that to kind of bring in the right people and not just paycheck collectors, if you will. We're looking for career-oriented personnel. So that's that's kind of the immediate need, I guess, is what you call the next 90 days. As far as the future, you know, we, we feel the market here in Oklahoma City can be anywhere from three to five million organically in the mitigation only space. Sorry, I, you were, got a little bit quiet. What's that again? I said, here in the market, I feel like we can be a three to five million dollar market organically for mitigation only. But we do do catastrophe response as well. So we will travel across the nation for hurricanes and other events that may be happening. So our long-term goal is to have that established CAT team that will respond to those events. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're growing and you're consistently improving. I would say now the, the last question that I love, if you could share one message on a billboard, I'm borrowing this from Tim Ferriss, but I think it's cool when he does it. <laughs> If you could share one message on a billboard, it can be anything from any category, but everyone's going to see it. What would it say on that billboard? Man, you did say the best for last. Simple. Don't quit. Don't quit. Keep going. Find something you love and, and put all your energy into it and you'll make it happen. Did you love restoration when you got into it or did you find a way to make it your quest to make it exciting? Frankly, we kind of pre- discussed this pre- before we started, but no, I wasn't in love with it. I didn't mind it. But it wasn't my passion. You know, my passion was obviously baseball, sports, and things of that nature, secondary to business. And so I knew that whatever I wanted to do was be an entrepreneur, have my own business. I didn't realize one day that it would be coming back into the restoration industry. Now, yes, I absolutely love it. Involved in many organizations and furthering myself and bettering myself in, within the industry and trying to network as much as possible and hopefully, you know, be one of the industry leaders one day and defining where this industry goes next. That's awesome. Well, I appreciate you being on the podcast, Joe. Thank you very much for the interview. And um, yeah, thanks a lot for being here. Absolutely. Thank you, Nate. Appreciate it. So so, uh, everyone, you just heard from Joe Gilligan, a former minor league professional baseball player and also uh, for the Chicago White Sox. And brilliant at building his business past a million dollars a year in the restoration space on the mitigation side. It's been a great interview. If you haven't taken the chance to download the Minimal CEO podcast, please do make sure that you have it available. We're also going to be doing some solo cast podcasts for Minimal CEO. I'm going to be jumping on and doing some specific training so you can look forward to that. We're going to be breaking into how do you identify your ultimate purpose and your gifts and how do you find what I call your five forces? How do you get the five core areas of your life working together so you don't always feel like you're pulled in a bunch of different directions? So you learn about the five forces and how to turn all the chaos in your life into one focus. So look forward to that coming up soon. Again, I'm Nate Lindquist. This is the Minimalist CEO podcast where you focus on what's essential and awaken your true calling. And I'll be back soon. And I hope you will too. Bye-bye.